All right, flip to Psalm chapter 2. The book of Psalms, last week we looked at Psalm 1, the well-ordered life, and tonight we're going to look at Psalm 2, the well-ordered nation. So let's read Psalm 2. I'll pray and we'll, we'll go from there. Psalm chapter 2, 1 through 12. These are the words of God. Why do the nations rage and the peoples meditate on a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord mocks them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like a potter's vessel. So now, O king, show insight. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Our Father and our good and gracious God, we thank you for gathering us together like this. We are grateful that we can sing and pray and, and look to your word. Father, we come with so much on our hearts and minds, so we ask that you would sanctify us, washing us with your word, so that we might better serve you and the people sitting right next to us. We ask now for your blessing, the choicest blessings from the storehouses of your immeasurable grace. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Well, I mentioned uh, briefly last week that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 go together as a preamble, an introduction, a preface for the entire Psalter. Uh, they are, in fact, what you can call the twin pillars of the Psalms, holding up the rest of the book with two main points of emphasis right at the very beginning. Psalm 1 emphasizes the Torah, the law, the instruction of God, and Psalm 2 emphasizes the Messiah, the anointed of God. So Torah and Messiah go together just like the law and the gospel go together. In fact, law and gospel is Yahweh's strategy, God's strategy for kingdom growth and dominion. I think that's why they're put here like this at the beginning of the book of Psalms. The law and the gospel are God's program, his strategy for kingdom growth and dominion in the world. And together, these two Psalms prepare us for the all-encompassing glory of God revealed in creation, in the Messiah, and of course, in the Word of God itself. So they are preparatory in nature. So they, both Psalms, one and two, they both explain where it is refuge is found as individuals, all of you standing before the face of God as individuals, that is what refuge is found. We know it's in God, yes, but it also tells us where refuge is found for nations, provided that, of course, we heed, heed what we find. Now, you may recall um, one of my points of emphasis last week was that the Psalter brings us to the top of the mountain. It invites us to perceive all of life through the lens of God's self-revelation. That's what the book of Psalms extols. 
The only perspective one can have if he or she wishes to truly experience the abundance and fruitfulness of God's purposes is the perspective of God's throne. So you, you just sort of, that's the only real perspective is the perspective of God's throne. So every issue you face, every familial issue, you know, whatever you're walking through as a family, as an individual, at your job, that's the perspective, the perspective of God's throne. And any other perspective relies on what we call imminence philosophy, where men choose to ignore the transcendent God and only look what's imminent, what is in front of us, the created order, and thus relies on man's reason as the ultimate guide. So it worships and serves the creation rather than the creator. So Psalm 1 and 2 goes together and it says something, something else entirely, something completely different than what you find on your average daily news show. The, the Psalter, this is just my own way of summarizing it, but I said this last week, the Psalter challenges our spiritual orientation. So whatever you're oriented on right now, if it isn't Christ and his word, then it's fixed on something that it shouldn't be, and then you have a problem. But this Psalter challenges our spiritual orientation. It revives our spirits. Think of David crying out in the valley of the shadow of death. We'll get to Psalm 23 eventually. It's my hope to do that. Um, but other places, too, where he speaks of his bones melting like wax. And I mean, that, there's agony. There's deep, real, raw emotions that go on in human, human experience. But it revives our spirits. The Psalter brings us to God's perspective so that we can find solace in the times of despondency and despair. The Psalter warms our faith. It warms our faith in the sense that oftentimes you can feel cold, distant, you know, where are you, God? David feels like that. Of course, where did God go? Well, he's, he's present everywhere. He didn't leave. You did. But it warms our faith. It's like a fire. You can stand next to it and, and have the warmth that you need. And the Psalter also invites us to complete, wholehearted devotion to the great I Am. The great I Am being the one who revealed himself to Moses through the burning bush. Who shall I say sent me? Moses says, I Am sent you. I Am that I Am. That's who we are to be devoted to. Now, we covered this again last week, but I want to remind you that the, the Torah, the word Torah, means instruction. And the English word instruction speaks of of all of Torah's constituents, that's us, Torah's constituents, um, it speaks of us as being in a certain structure. So to have instruction is to be in a structure. So you, to meditate on God's law word is to be instructurated. You are giving instruction to your children and how they are to function, right parents? as they grow and mature, what they need to know, what they need to, to believe, how they need to view the world. You are providing a structure for them. They need to be in it. So that's what Torah is. That's what the law of God is. We're in this structure. It's also to be in this arrangement of a set of teaching which pertains to God's holiness, God's standards, God's created order, all things. So all men everywhere, even you children here today, you are in, inescapably, I should say, you are inescapably in this. You are in the created structures of the world. So the option is always this. One, you can rebel against God's structure, which doesn't change the structures one bit, right? I mean, how much hemming and hawing is going on over the abortion debate right now? Um, they've gotten, they've been, it's been reduced down to clump, clump of cells language. And so one large clump of cells tells a smaller clump of cells. 
and it becomes irrational. Uh, it's just stupidity. So that's what rebellion does, though. It melts you down into a puddle of despair and idiocy. So you can rebel against that, or you can embrace it, and then you find fruitfulness and blessing. So especially the children here, as your parents are teaching you and educating you and bringing you into this structure, the structure that they're in and they're trying to sort through and they're working through, because not a, what parent in here can say we all have it together, right? But you're, we're trying to give you the path to fruitfulness, the, the path to blessing, and that's the path of God. And that's the direction of the law. So you can rebel or you can embrace it. That's the direction. And Psalm 1 tells us we have to be careful how we choose. Furthermore, we are all confronted by a world that is violent with threats, overrun by humanism, and it's arrogant with its loquaciousness, meaning that it loves to run its mouth. And it's amazing how much you hear in response to what happened on Friday that is just... It's like the Charlie Brown teacher. <laughs> Just words that are strung together. Word salad that means nothing. But that's the world we're confronted with. They have a lot of words, but they don't even know what words mean. So when, when overstimulated by the litany of worldly hurriedness and all these things we have going on, the Psalms invite us to leave the world of self-centeredness behind and instead embrace the real world as it is in a state of Christ-centeredness. The two legs of Psalm 1 and 2, they walk us in the way we should go, away from the filth and rebellion that we see and into the glories of God's Torah, into the glories of God's Messiah. A man simply is not ready to enter the courts of Yahweh for prayer and adoration if his life is disheveled and unkempt. The Psalms get you ready for that. Only when we're slowed down can we sustain the speed bump. Only when we're instructed by God and thus submitted to God can we, can we then see properly. That's what Psalms 1 and, Psalm 1 and 2 tells us. So meditating on the law instruction, it keeps frivolous words out of our hearts and thus off of our lips. Psalm 1 and 2 is a call to attentiveness. It's a call to pay attention. Be alert. Do not go to sleep. Wake up. This is reality. This is what we have to deal with. Fight sin in your life. Embrace holiness. Psalm 1 and 2. You're, you are a tree. You are a tree, and either your roots will be put down next to the streams of living water, or they will be shriveled up next to the calamitous winds of destruction. So your life is yours to steward. Don't farm it off to the nanny state. Don't farm it off to somebody else. Self-discipline is what we're after. Your life is yours to steward. Where will you find yourself situated? To whom or on what will you, your attention gaze? Those are the questions we have for Psalm 1 and 2. Let's look at our text. Remember, <laughs> there's a little tone to this here, but Psalm 1 is very quiet. It's very peaceful. Uh, it's next to a stream. Who doesn't love a nice shady spot next to a stream with a nice book? Feet in the dirt, relaxed. It's very com You can feel the comfort, right? Isn't it nice? It's nice. Everybody take that in. Well, brace yourself. Psalm 2 is something entirely different. It's boisterous. It is violent. It is loud. It's in the face of a tyrant. You can feel the discomfort in Psalm chapter 2. Psalm 1 invites us to rest in the law instruction of God. Psalm 2 invites us to do battle, but trust in the Messiah of God, the anointed one. 
Look at verse 1. 1, 2, and 3. Why do the nations rage? Why do the nations rage? Great question. And the peoples meditate on a vain thing. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. This is like the motto of the World Economic Forum, by the way. So, coming off the heels of the wicked being told that they will perish, the nations rage, or, or they meditate. Who here has an ESV? I think an ESV says plot, right? It says plot. So, I, this is what I like about the LSB, because meditate is actually the better translation. And I'll explain why in a second. But their, their conspiracy, these nations, their conspiracy, they, they breathe together, conspire with breath, that's what it means, their conspiracy is a restlessness. It's a restlessness towards the kingship of Yahweh over the nations. They are loud. They are sinister in their plannings. Uh, they're active in their suppression of the truth. And the first question here, the first question, why do the nations rage, is you can almost ask it like this. What is the reason for this already past thing that you have done? It's in the Hebrew language, it's talking about a past event. Why, why did the nations rage? Is kind of what it's asking. And the second part is, well, why would they dare assume that they will succeed now in the future based on that raging, based on those debauched plans? Why rage against God? Well, it only leads, it only leads to death. The nations and the kings of the earth rebel against Yahweh's kingship and lordship, but the Bible says it's in vain. It's in vain. That is, it's senseless. It, it cannot succeed. It's impossible. Klaus Schwab can say all the garbage he wants, but it's just... Wah, 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 wah. <laughs> That's what it is. It's senseless. Psalm 10, verse 16 declares, Yahweh is king forever and ever. Nations have perished from his land. The Psalms often, all throughout, all the, all the Psalms, all throughout it, you can find them all over the place, but the Psalms often speak of Yahweh's lordship over all nations. <laughs> sort of basic stuff here, Christianity 101, but it puts his kingdom as the only true sovereign over all. It doesn't bifurcate the world. Well, he's lord over here, but not over here. He, he's king over all the nations. Over and over and over again, the psalmist will, will say that. He's the only true sovereign. His kingdom is immovable. Uh, one could no sooner end the kingdom of God than he could end the shining of the sun. Their, their conspiring together is against the Lord's anointed. It is against the Lord's anointed, the Davidic king who represents Yahweh's throne on earth. The anointed one is the manager of God's house on earth. He is the steward of the temple. He's a porter at the gate. This is this anointed the anointed one. And they meditate, the same word that is actually used back in chapter 1. That's why I think plot, plot is the same idea, but meditate is actually the same exact Hebrew word that we find um, back in Psalm chapter 1. So conspiring nations, they want to be free to commit all types of sins and abominations. That's what they want to do. They want to be their own gods. They want to be unshackled. They want to be unfettered by God. They want to be unmitigatedly unrestrained in their lusts and in their pride. They want desperately to bury Christianity and her God. But the fact remains, God is sovereign. Man is obtuse and antic. 
Uh, in, In man's wrath, he wants to go on unimpeded by Christian doctrine. He wants to live in God's world, but only on his relativized terms. So in in the mind of the unregenerate, that stubborn ox that refuses to work, that's actually the language used here, Yahweh's rule is considered bondage. The rule of Yahweh is like an ox who is bound up and ready to go into the field to plow, but refuses to go. That's what the unregenerate is. And they view that as bondage, not freedom. Look at verses 4, 5, and 6. So the stage is set. He who sits in the heavens, however, laughs. The Lord mocks them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy hill. So the nations, they plot against Jerusalem's king, but what they don't see is that they are doing so against the Lord's anointed, against the Lord's chosen one. God sits in the heavens, which means he is king and Lord of all, not just Israel, but responding to their futile efforts, God laughs. He mocks the co-conspirators. Matthew Henry writes, Sinners' follies are the just sport of God's infinite wisdom and power. When he looks at the debauched plans of the United Nations and the the schemes of collectivism and humanism that, that just we swim in on a daily basis. When God sees all that, he laughs at it. He mocks it. He, he thinks it's absolutely the most ridiculous thing he's ever seen. The only appropriate response to the futility of man's warring against God is holy laughter. So sometimes you just need to laugh at what you see out there. Just, just laugh at it. God looks upon their phony attempted usurpations, not with fear and trembling as though the infinite Godhead could ever feel threatened by what goes on 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 earth, but he looks at it instead with derision and contempt and mockery. Look at these fools trying to capture my sovereignty. Look at these people in their status schemes trying to overthrow the Lord of glory, my son who I have seated next to me in power. Look at them. They're fools. God laughs at their haughtiness. And, and he doesn't laugh, of course, at the pain that they inflict on others as a result of such contempt towards God. And there's a lot of pain that's inflicted because of these fools. But he makes them stammer and splutter around. He makes them, he makes them truly fools. So after his rather jovial mockery, the Lord responds with yet another affirmation. Not only does God live in the heavens and do whatever he pleases, God sets forth a decree from the heavens stating that Zion is the locale of God's sovereign kingship. Now we have a problem. Who will rule history? See, history is the glorious unfolding of God's decrees. That's what we see in the book of Revelation with the scroll and the wrapping up of the the old covenant, the entrance of the new covenant into the world through the death and resurrection of Christ, the end of the old age in AD 70, history was wrapped up. History is just the unfolding of God's decrees. David's offspring, remember David wanted to build a house for the Lord, but God said, no, you're not going to do that. Your son will do that. David's offspring, Solomon, his son Solomon, would build a house for the Lord where God would dwell in the midst of his people and Yahweh would be their up-close-and-personal God while still ruling over the nations. Yet, as we see outlined in 2 Samuel 7 and even uh, 1 Chronicles 17, God says that 
he would build David a house. So David wants to build God a house, and God says, well, I'm going to build your house, actually. And it's a play on words, but there's a point. God is going to establish his dynasty through a Davidic king. And Psalm 110.1 tells us who that is. It's the Lord Jesus. Now, Solomon did uh, dedicate the temple. And when Solomon dedicated the temple in Jerusalem, he explained how God dwells in Zion while simultaneously ruling from heaven. And so the point is, David's throne is Yahweh's throne. This is why dispensationalists today get mixed up with we need to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem so that we can have David's throne again, failing to see that David's throne is actually in heaven because David's throne was just an extension of Yahweh's throne. And Hosea tells us that throne was taken away. So David's throne is Yahweh's throne. It's a merger of the heavenly courtroom. You can see uh, 1 Chronicles 29.23 if you want to look that up later. 1 Chronicles 29.23. So God laughs at the wicked. God laughs at the wicked, no doubt, but he also speaks in his anger. He speaks in his anger. He terrifies the nations with his fury. And the way he does it is by installing his king in Jerusalem. So you think about David and Solomon and the dynasty, the glory days, if you will, of, of, of Israelite history. That was God speaking to the nations in his anger, in his fury, setting up his king in Jerusalem. But where is Zion today? <laughs> This is a question that you will uh, get a lot of different answers for, but you just really need to look at the book of Hebrews to find out. Where is Zion today? Look around the room. <laughs> the church of the living God is Zion, according to Hebrews. So God rules over the world, over all of creation, all aspects of creation. He rules over the world through a locale, his kingdom outpost, being the visible church of God, which is stationed all over the world. Look at verse 7. I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with the rod of iron. You shall shatter them like a potter's vessel. The decree of Yahweh is his relationship to his begotten son. The New Testament is right, obviously. It's always right. You can always guarantee that. But it's right in seeing this is a fulfillment of, of Jesus. At Christ's baptism, you might remember that the Father bestowed these words of sonship on Jesus, fulfilling the Scriptures. At Jesus' ascension to the Ancient of Days in fulfillment of Daniel 7, uh, he asked for the nations as an inheritance because his work of redemption was finished. That's what he did when he sat down next to the throne. The nations, Father, yes, sends the church to go get the nations by the power of the Spirit. And Jesus was given the ends of the earth as his possession and ruling over them with a rod of iron. He breaks them into pieces uh, like one would do were he to throw a piece of pottery to the ground. Three times in the book of Revelation, these words are quoted. Each time, okay, every single time, describing Christ's current not future, lordship over the nations. The rod, the rod of iron, the rod, which is it's illustrated similarly in the, in the wisdom book of Proverbs, the, the rod is actually the shepherd's crook that would short, uh, sort out the, the sheep and guide them and direct them, and it was used to strike the wolves and the other evildoers who would try to attack. It was a guide for the sheep, but it was a danger for the enemy. And note that the rod is made of iron and not wood. 
It's a rod of iron. And that's because Jesus is indestructible. He is indefatigable. He is truly an iron man. <laughs> Verse 10. So now, O kings, show insight. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Because the Messiah has been installed, the kings are to show insight. They are to be wise. They're called on now to show wisdom. That's part of what we should be doing in calling them to repentance. Show wisdom. True wisdom comes from the fountain of all wisdom, namely Jesus, the Word of God. Nations are called to cease and desist from their raging, and they are instead called to serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Um, the verb uh, serve there is actually often used in Psalms as a reference to worship. So we're not asking them to just be nice to us. We're actually telling the nations that they should not rage against the Creator. Rather, they should worship and serve and rejoice or celebrate with trembling. They are told to kiss the Son, to pay homage or obeisance to the Messiah. So rather than kick, kick against the goats, they're to find themselves in service to Jesus. Additionally, what must characterize a nation is its celebration of the Messiah. So rather than pride parades, we should have humility parades. What, what should characterize a nation is its celebration of the Messiah, its holy fear of the Christ, its awe and joy of King Jesus. So feast, uh, we fellowship together every single week as a feast to the Lord. Uh, it's one of the most important things we do. And we are told here that nations must do this. Nations should be doing this. Like the sinners and scoffers who perish in Psalm 1, so will a nation perish when it runs up against the wrath of God. So there is blessing in walking a certain way. There is blessing in nations taking refuge in Christ. And note here, one may, one may war against this Christ to the bitter end, but there's no refuge from Messiah the Prince. You can run, but you can't hide. There is only refuge in Him. There's, you can't escape from Him. You must go to Him if you want refuge. Now, what's important to note about this psalm is, is that the New Testament sees the fulfillment of these verses in the ministry of Jesus leading up to the cross and, and the resurrection, to His death and resurrection. So when you read words like this that are telling you about the lordship of the Messiah, the rulership of, in His kingdom and of this anointed one, and the nations raging against Him. Just note that your New Testament are, are like Bible study notes for the Old Testament. It's telling you what it means. And the New Testament sees it. For example, in Acts 4, um, when Stephen read that, Peter and John insisted that Pilate and Herod were a fulfillment of the nation-raging prophecy when they went after Jesus, putting him to death. So they, they're, they're looking at, God predestined it, but they're raging against the Lord and his anointed. So they see that fulfillment right there and then in, in the first century. In Acts 13.33, the Apostle Paul quotes from the second psalm, declaring that Jesus' resurrection from the dead is the begotten sonship of Jesus, spoken about in our passage. He says the same thing, actually, in the very first six verses of Romans chapter 1. When you think about the begottenness of the Son, it's not like Jesus never existed until he became a man. 
he, the eternal sonship of, of the second person of the Trinity is eternal. But the begottenness, according to the New Testament, is his firstborn, firstfruits from the dead. That's Colossians 1 as well. When, when, when we say that Jesus is the firstborn, we mean he's the firstborn from the dead. He was the one who was raised in glory. So that's, that's the begottenness of Jesus that's fulfilled here. So the New Testament does not see any of Psalm 2 as being 2,000 years into the future. Just FYI, because that's what dispensationalists will argue. Read the New Testament. They situate it right there in the first century. Hebrews and Philippians reference this text as well, especially verse 11, citing the command of all peoples and nations to serve Yahweh with fear and trembling. In other words, the New Testament writers, they were not aloof, they were not ambiguous. Psalm 2 unfolded before their eyes in the ministry, life, uh, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus Christ, which means his kingdom has been in place ever since. And the proclamation that must be on the lips of the church is the command to pay homage to King Jesus. Okay, when you get... I'm, I'm still waiting for my invitation to the White House, but I don't think it's ever coming. But when you get the opportunity... It's not pretty please. It's a command to serve Yahweh with fear and trembling, to bow down before King Jesus. There's this namby-pamby Christianity today is the reason why we're in the mess we're in. They are commanded to pay homage to King Jesus. Those are the premillennial persuasion. They have a lot of explaining to do with regard to this very clear text. This passage, along with Psalm 110.1, emphatically declaring the current rule and reign of the Messiah. Uh, it's, it's not some reign in some obscure distant future. Jesus is Lord now. So when you tell people that Jesus is Lord now, we mean Jesus is Lord now, not, hey, you better repent because he's going to come back and be Lord someday. Moreover, the tenor of the psalm itself draws a radically stark contrast between this attempted rule of man and the establishment of God's king. Radical contrast between these two things. Men trying to establish their own kingdom. What does God do as a response? He laughs at them, but he establishes his king instead. Men who perceive God's law order as being a draconian deterrent to their aspirations to deity will always and without fail find themselves enviously driven towards anger. So, <laughs> conspiratorial anger is the only outcome ever. That's why there's no reasoning with people on this abortion issue. They know, they, they know. They're not victims, they know, and they don't care. And they will um, curse at you and tell you you're number one until the cows come home. And they, there's no rationale thinking, and that's because when you confront someone with the truth of God's law order, that they're swimming and breathing in God's world, and you say, you need to, to, to bow before Christ the King because He will crush you if you don't. Well, the only thing they can do is, is scream and yell. That's always the outcome. Always. So the establishment, and by the way, <laughs> all of that happens because Sin warps the mind and it soils the heart. So in, in the total and comprehensive kingdom of Jesus Christ, there, there's no safe space where one can escape the demands of God, and we should preach and teach in that way. 
The establishment of Jesus Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords is the establishment of worldwide dominion over all things and all nations, all institutions, all areas of life, all facets of science and technology, everything from literature all the way to food. Everything in this world pertains to the kingdom of God. Jesus has lordship over all of it. Christ's worldwide dominion, which cannot be misconstrued to be a dominion solely over the church, is only such because God has granted it to him. Christ was obedient, and because of that, he inherited the kingdom. Same thing for David, same thing for Solomon. The king's military or political power is not why he is the ruler. I mean, think of Saul, right? Just a handsome fella, big, tall, strong. Everybody thought, great leader, that's awesome. Shepherd boy comes, slays the giant. Because God looks in the inside, we're told. His, the strength is not in power and how you can exude that. The strength is submission to Christ. He shall have dominion, Psalm 72 explains, because he is God's cosmic king. The nations got Jesus. They put him to death. What did, Je what did God do as a result? Put him as a king. And he laughs at him. Kings and rulers either serve God or they are destroyed. The same is true today with Jesus Christ seated on high. Nations and her leaders will either serve King Jesus and they will develop a social and political ordering of life in accordance with his law word, or they will be dismantled and they will be left in the dustbin of history. There may be a time, in a long time from now, where people look back and say, oh yeah, do you, do you remember the United States of America? Yeah, they existed once. Kind of like Egypt did, and Rome, and Greece. And then the Babylonians... Assyrians, Babylonians, and the Persians, the Greeks, Romans, and we'll just be another nation that fell apart and was left in the dustbin of history. Now, you'll notice, I mentioned this earlier, the word meditate used in Psalm 1, it shows up here again in Psalm chapter 2. The LSB leaves it there, which I like. Other translations say plot, but the verb, as I said last week, means to coo or mutter. The action of Psalm, in Psalm 1 and 2 is the same muttering about the Word of God, the very thing or the person that determines all of existence, including the entire structure of reality. But for the Christian, this muttering is obviously meant in a positive sense. Verbalizing and repeating the Word of God for the sake of repetition and learning and implementation. I su suggested to you last week that maybe when you're doing your Bible reading at home, just say it out loud and try that. It may be weird, but we're used to sort of just putting it here, but put it on your lips too for the sake of repetition and, and all of those things. So we, again, we don't empty our minds, we fill our minds. We're not Eastern mystics, we are Christians. We're biblical Christians, so we should fill our minds as such. So when, we, when I say mutter in the positive sense is what I mean. It obviously can be a negative sense, but for the unregenerate, these nations, stubborn, recalcitrant nations, are muttering the word of God, but they do it with contempt in their hearts. They know God, which is why they mutter against him. They have a God-given religious bent in their hearts that drives them to worship something. However, in this case, it's not as though they are passively cavalier about God. You know, I could take him or leave him. No, it's, not, it's never that. They're violently against him. They want any trace of God that's left in Western civilization to be eradicated. That's what we have 
we're living through that right now. Psalm 2 leaves no room for any sort of two kingdoms program, no room for pessimillennialism, no room for defeatism, only victory. Only victory. Psalm 2, rather than those options, says that there's no, no neutrality. There is no option B for a nation. Either a nation will covenant together in service of Yahweh and His anointed, or it will perish. That's it. When, when a few of us yesterday were downtown in Warrington with signs, you had the BLM on the one side and the ALM, <laughs> All Lives Matter, on this side. And it was very apparent early on that, um, I know, Chris, you've been there too, that there's sort of like a conservative-liberal divide, right? And that's how they see it. It's only like conservative politics, leftist politics. And there is some truth to that. But one of the gentlemen who was there, uh, he was yelling uh, rather obscenely, it seemed like, uh, at them from across the street. And it dawned on me in that moment, which I I know this, but it hit me in a unique way. Maybe it was the Spirit waking me up to it. But that's why you have to have a Christian response to these things. And you can't just make it about politics. Politics are a part of it, but if you make it only that, you miss out. And, and there has to be a Christian response. And our, our response is very simple. Either the nation's going to covenant together and we're going to serve God and his kingdom, or we're going to perish. And that's it. And you will look like an absolute lunatic saying that. But that's the program we're called to, not passivity and, oh... Let's just try to get along and find middle ground and yada, yada, yada. No, the, the ground is Christ's. Find that. That's all there is. Unquestionably, all of life is religion. All of life is religion. All, and all of true religion is centered on the inspired law revelation of God's holy word. And the word will either pierce the heart with truth when we're preaching it and teaching it and encouraging people in it, and, and, and when you do that, people will then bend the knee before King Jesus, or the word that is proclaimed will be viewed as a chain restricting one's freedom. And thus, you know, one will not bend the knee. That's why this whole argument about this has become women's rights, reproductive rights, my choice, my, my body, my choice. They reframe it because they're angry. And why are they angry? Because they think God's law is stupid. They think that his law is a chain that separates, and and, and in a way it is, it's supposed to anchor us so that we don't fly off the rails and do our own autonomous things. But that's why they hate it. So the response, though, that man chooses is going to dictate his future, and the same goes for any nation. Psalm 2 tells us that in the eyes of the impenitent, the word of man must supplant the word of God. That's the very reason why Western culture is crumbling. That's why critical theory exists. That's why all these radical gender theories exist. It's why we're seeing an inglorious social revolution take place right under our noses. Uh, It's also why the bloodlusting demons are in their death throes right now. The nations, when torn asunder by pride, torn asunder by despotism, ultimately want Christianity to be dead and buried. That's what they're after. There is no middle ground here. And what else would we expect? They wanted Jesus dead and buried. And what did they do to make sure that that happened? Remember, children, what did they do to the tomb? 
they sealed it, remember, with a wax sealant. They probably put layers upon layers on there to make sure that nobody stole his body and tried to claim all this and that. They wanted him dead. They wanted him to stay dead. And they put him in that tomb and sealed it to make sure of it because that's what rage does. It puts you against the Messiah. So that's what they did to Jesus. They, and think of it this way. If they put the Lord of glory to death, you can bet that any trace of his matchless grace must be put to death too. Any shred, any hint of resurrection power that goes on in families that reveal, you know, reflect the glory of God, uh, it's just it's mind-numbing that homeschoolers, how dare you? Well, that's because Jesus is alive, <laughs> right? So no wonder they want to come after that. But how does God respond? That's the question of the text. How does God respond? How ought we to respond? Well, in this case, God laughs and mocks at their tawdry efforts, uh, the, the tawdry efforts of kings and rulers who try to outmatch the infinite one. He laughs at them. God's laughter at man is due to the futility of trying to hostily navigate life without God. But the pretensions of man are only worthy of godly mockery and derision. And there is a time and a place for us to reflect this as well. But don't forget that we labor from victory. Our Lord is risen. We do not labor as those who have been defeated. How else, tell me, friends, how else can you stare madness in the face and remain unshakable if you aren't working from victory? The enemies of God, they're a mere drop in the bucket. It's no big deal for him. Therefore, we should not grow weary. God deals with souls in Psalm 1. He deals with nations and politicians in Psalm chapter 2. And the way God deals with the world is by sending his glorious, unassuming son into the world to be beaten by the world, to be bruised by the world, to be murdered and put to death by the world so that God in that moment can laugh at them and hold them in derision and raise him up. The incarnation was an inside job. It wasn't an accident, a plan B. God knew that was his plan. It was an inside job. God became a man to deal with men. The gospel is, is God's invasion plan. It's his rescue plan to capture men alive, making them anew, and in order to rearrange their heart's desires and thus all of their cultural pursuits. The, the gospel is the great rehabilitation plan, a transformation of men, of children, women, families, jobs, nations, cultures, all pursuits. It's a transformation so that they are fit to serve the living God. So all of our preaching and teaching, and parents, when you're teaching your children at home too, and your discipleship program that you have installed there, right, the school of, of hard knocks from Psalm 2 here, you have to have this perspective or you're doomed. You have to have this perspective. We're training Davids to go up against, against some very big giants that want to rage against the Lord's anointed. Children, you need to know that Christ is victorious. So we must call on the nations to surrender. Call on them to surrender. Lay down their arms. Sur surrender yourself, your position, your power, your lust for authority and, and totalitarian politics. Surrender it all. Lay it before the feet of King Jesus. All of life is religion and all of it must serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, you've been good to us. So good to us. And we realize that there's a very fine line here because at one point we were raging against your anointed as well. 
we all have the capabilities because of the sin, sin that is still at work sometimes in us. We have the capabilities of striving against you, striving against the Lord Jesus. And we confess that and pray that you would keep us from that. Keep, us, keep our minds sharp and attentive because of your word. May your spirit make sure that he is prodding us when the time comes for us to, to, to be repentant, to apologize, to, to extend forgiveness, whatever the situation. We want to be attentive to your word. And Father, we want our nation to be attentive to your word. Just the absolute nonsense of man and his schemes. It is tiring, exhausting. But we know that you laugh at them. So help us to laugh when it's appropriate. But help us to be emboldened to proclaim your truth. And we submit all of these requests on the authority of your Son, the Lord Jesus, whom we served, our King, our Messiah. In his name, amen.